Good morning. Good morning. Hey, if you need a Bible, raise your hand and you can first open to John chapter 13. If you have a Bible, open there. If you need one, raise your hand high. And one of the folks walking through the aisles will make sure and put one in your hands. The two primary passages we'll be in today is John chapter 13 and 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So if you're one of those people that want to mark uh, the places we'll be, those are the two primary places, John chapter 13 and 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're in a series in the book of Romans, and in Romans chapter 1, there's very clear statements about homosexuality. Now, we told you last week that in the flow of Paul's argument in the book of Romans, his main point is not homosexuality. His main point is to declare the sinfulness of all of humanity. Peter Jones um, is a Bible scholar and one who engages with culture. And we quoted him last week in saying that Paul's point is not to make homosexuals feel guilty. It's to make all of us feel guilty. So why then do we stop and not just take one week but two weeks to deal with this topic? Well, we said this last week. We want to be biblical, and when we come to a topic like this, we don't want to avoid it, and we can't really. I mean, if we're going to teach verse by verse through the book of Romans, it's there. We have to address it, and we think the Bible is extraordinarily relevant. Um, we didn't necessarily know how relevant it was going to be when we were teaching the book of Romans to what it is now, and that gets to the second issue. It is a very contextual conversation. By contextual, I just mean it's going on around us. I mean, it's just the truth. No matter where you stand on this issue, it's around us all the time. You know, you can, from the New York Times to the Arizona Republic to every online magazine to every television statement station. I mean, this last week, the biggest sports channel um, that's ever existed in ESPN spent the whole week speaking about the first male athlete to come out, major male athlete to come out and identify himself as gay. So it's very contextual. Because of that, uh, we have a desire to pastor our congregations and you all unto life. And this is the reality of where we live. So we need to ask questions about what does the Bible say about this issue? How should I think about this issue? What are the implications of this thinking? Because the Bible is public truth. The Bible doesn't present itself as some book that you can hold on to for your private, individual, religious experience. There's other faiths that do that. Christianity doesn't. This is public truth, and this is God's world, and this world belongs to God. If you've grown up in the church, you sang hymns about that, about the world belonging to God, and therefore God ordered it to function in a certain way, and we want to pastor you all unto life and bring about, like Paul says in Romans chapter 1, the obedience of faith. That the point of Christianity, the point of Jesus' death upon a cross was salvation. Yes, un, out of a place called hell, unto heaven. But it was salvation unto life. Unto a following of God that we couldn't do because of sin. That now he frees us to do through Christ. So last week we looked very specifically, what does the Bible teach about this topic of homosexuality. We titled it, A Theology of Homosexuality. And we said that this wasn't a very pleasant truth or a very you know, um, tasteful truth in our culture, but the truth is that Jesus does not approve of homosexual behavior. And he doesn't because of from where it stems that all of sin is in the world because of our alienation from God, like a broken down power line that breaks down and it's constantly looking for its source. Paul in Romans 1 says that we're looking in this place and we're looking at that place and it manifests itself in disastrous consequences. And one of the examples of sin's manifestation is homosexuality, but it stems from alienation from God. We said he doesn't approve of homosexual behavior because of what it shows, that the heart of Paul's argument is a biological argument, an argument from the way God ordered the world. And we said if a Martian came down here and you saw two naked individuals sitting on the stage and they were of the opposite sex, the Martian could look at that and go, that works. But if they were of the same sex, 
They would say it doesn't. That's the heart of Paul's argument. It is a biological argument. And then we said he doesn't approve of it because of what springs from it. That what springs from sin and the living out of open rebellion against God and the way he ordered the world has disastrous consequences. And God is pro-life in every sense of the word. Not just in that he wants babies to come to be born, but he's pro-life in that he wants you to have life and have it to the full. Because he's pro-life in that way, he hates those things that are destructive and destroy. And then the last thing, he doesn't approve of homosexual behavior because of what it says. That when you live out of God's ordered design, it's saying something externally that you're believing internally that I won't take God at his word. I won't submit to him as Lord of the earth, which is his very call upon all of humanity. Now today we're going to look at a Christian response to homosexuality. And a Christian response to homosexuality, very simply stated, is marked by love. A Christian response to anything for that matter is marked and is going to always be marked by love. The ethic of the kingdom of God is an ethic of love. So today we'll look at a Christian response to homosexuality is marked by love which manifests itself. And this is going to get really practical where you live. It has to manifest itself first in convicted civility. That as you live in the public sphere, you have to have conviction and be civil. And convicted civility in a transforming mind. That's ongoing, your mind being transformed in a winsome way and with hope. So it will manifest itself in convicted civility, a transforming mind, a winsome way, and hope. Now, we say a Christian response. What does that mean? Well, let's look at the idea of Christian just for a minute. The way that word was developed, it was actually first given to the Christians by those who were not Christians. They said those are Christians. Well, how did they do that? Well, at the time, they would look at people, people that mimicked others that wanted to be like them. They said they were little blanks. So there was a king named Herod. And King Herod had a bunch of followers that would dress like him and walk like him and do exactly what he said to do. And they were called the Herodians, which meant the little Herods. So when they looked at the Christians and the way they were living, they said, man, they're trying to be just like Jesus. They take this guy at his word. They do what he says. They want to walk the way he walks and talk the way he talks. That's a Christian. A Christian isn't just a bubble that you mark on a sheet when it says, what religion do you adhere to? A Christian is not just, what holidays do you celebrate in December? A Christian is one who seeks to follow Jesus, be a little Christ. Now, what's the mark of a Christian? There was a great Bible teacher and uh, cultural influencer named Francis Schaeffer um, that is recently deceased, depending upon how you define recent, but he's uh, fairly recently deceased. And he has some amazing works, but one uh, small work that I would recommend all of you go online. You can get a free PDF or you can order for like $5.50. It bound is, is an essay he wrote called The Mark of a Christian. And at the beginning of this essay, A Mark of a Christian, he says, Christians have marked themselves throughout the ages in many ways. So early on, they would mark themselves by drawing a little Christian fish in the dirt to tell other people Christians were here. Now we paste them on the bumpers of our cars. People wear things around their neck. They wear crosses and they, they put crosses and crucifixes up in their homes and they'll put Bible verses up. People wear lapel pens. But at the end of the day, many of those have to do with the time in which you live. Are they accepted? Are they not accepted? Sometimes it was your haircut, how you did all kinds of things, how you dressed. All of those things have their way depending upon what you feel called to do. But there is one mark that transcends all of time, all of geography, and it really is what sets out to determine whether or not we really are Christians and whether or not the world sees us such, and that is love. It's a far better sign than any type of pin that you could wear on your jacket or bumper sticker that you could put on your car. Jesus, um, right before the close of his ministry, he knows that what's coming before him is profound in its level of sacrifice. 
that what he's about to experience will be horrific by every stretch of the imagination. He knows he's going to go endure the cross. And yet he knows that this is means to victory. That he will raise victoriously from the dead. And he will again be with his father in heaven through an ascension. And he sits with his disciples. And he tells them very specific a new command he has for them in John 13. He says this, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, just as I told the Jews, and so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give to you. Now, here it is, the mark. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So Jesus is revealing this mark that transcends geographic and time boundaries. It isn't meant for one era or locality. Now, but notice what he says. This is a command of Jesus. So in the same way we want to come under the lordship of Christ, meaning he's lord, he's king, we will do what he says when it comes to homosexuality. We must do what he says when he comes to how we respond to that reality, how we live out that reality. And here's the command, love each other. But this command also, if you look at it, has a condition to it. A new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, here this begins the condition, by this all men, not some men, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. If you obey, then you wear the badge that Christ gave you. If you do not obey, then you don't. Now, the Bible's really strong when it comes to love. So strong, in fact, that it is the distinguishing mark that 1 John says would determine whether or not you truly are a Christian. If you say you love God, and you don't love your neighbor, you have no assurance that you're a Christian. Now, reality would say that there's a possibility, and there is in all of our lives all of the time, this reality of us being unloving and yet still having hearts that have been transformed by God through Jesus Christ. And yet, there's another condition. You wouldn't even prove it to yourself, but you wouldn't prove it to the unbelieving world. That all men watch in and they know only one way, only by one thing, whether or not we are truly little Christ, disciples. And that is the distinguishing mark of love. If we want the world to know Jesus and that we follow him, we must love. Now that word is, is quite complicated, isn't it? Because it's being thrown around like crazy in the midst of this argument and many others. You couldn't sit on the floor of Congress and not have each one of those people believe deeply that what they're promoting and espousing is going to create a greater society of love. So what is love from a biblical perspective? Well, there have been theologians and Bible teachers that have written books and books and books, and some of them are great and some of them are terrible. If you want to know which ones, ask me, and I'll, I'll let you know which ones not to waste your time on, which ones to engage in. Um, but it's pretty clearly stated in 1 Corinthians 13 what love is with some real description. Love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now understand the context in which Paul wrote this. The Corinthian church was screwed up to the highest degree. I mean, you don't even realize how screwed up that church was. And yet he's calling them to love. Now, if everybody is espousing love, I, it's very interesting how often this phrase is used. Love, and even this passage is called upon to define love. But many times they won't say the whole entire thing. You know, it'd be really interesting to engage in our political conversations and ask if they're loving and certainly as we engage in issues of sexuality and homosexuality. Now the reality is, as we move into this today, let's just start with this real true statement that as the church, we need to critique 
We need to uphold the word of God, which is public truth, and allow it to critique the world. But we also are in the world, right? We need to be critiqued. We need to critique and we need to allow ourselves to be critiqued. So let's come to it like that, amen? Let's say yes. yes. We're willing to be critiqued as well. So let's go. A Christian, Jesus-shaped, I'll say, a Jesus-shaped response to homosexuality is marked by love and will manifest itself in convicted civility. Now the truth is, Redemption Gilbert, we live in a world with multiple belief systems. On every single issue, there are many beliefs and there are many convictions. Our world is far from homogenous. That word just means the same. It's very diverse. It's far from homogenous. The statement people would use for it is we live in a pluralistic world. This demands, if we're going to have flourishing conversations with anybody, if we're going to be winsome at all, this demands that we have a public square where we're able, all people are able to hold their deepest convictions and yet conduct themselves in a civil way. Now that's an argument I could make outside of the Bible. Like how are we ever going to move forward as a community, which in reality we are all connected whether we want to acknowledge it or not. The policies that are put into place, the laws that are established, the magazines that come out, the television shows that are promoted, all affect everybody. You never make an independent decision. This is an idea called solidarity. We're all connected whether we like it or not. You can think and act and care only as if you're an individual, but the reality is your family has ramifications upon them for the decisions that you make. You can act like you're an individual alone, but the decisions that you make affect the place that you work. It affects the neighborhood that you're in. It affects the town that you live in. That's the facts. So in order for us to live in a public space with and amongst each other, we must be able to hold our deepest convictions and yet engage each other in a civil way. Now, if we were going to engage the scriptures, we would say civility is an obvious outcome of love. How do you love somebody by not listening to them? How do you love somebody by writing them off, by being rude to them, by being arrogant to them, by not being patient with them? You absolutely couldn't be. This is illustrated incredible in this last week when Jason Collins, this NBA basketball player, openly comes out as a homosexual. And some of you guys, if if you follow anything at all, would have seen the controversy that ensued because on ESPN, uh, there's an NBA insider named Chris Broussard, who I only know now was a Christian, I had no idea before, was asked a question very directly, asked a question, he said, the, the interviewer asked Chris Broussard, hey, this guy states that he's a Christian, And he comes out as an open homosexual. What do you think about that? Now we can argue what Chris Broussard could have said, would have said, how he would have said it. But he came out very direct and basically said, if you're living in open rebellion against God, whatever your sin may be, whether it's premarital sex, whether it's sex outside of marriage, whether it's, you know, he lists a whole bunch of things, or homosexuality. If you come out in open rebellion against God and you continue to stay living in that, I wouldn't call you a Christian because the Bible wouldn't call you a Christian. That's what he says. Now, there's an absolute uproar about this. Like an up, people are freaking out, going, there's no possible way he could have said that. Now, at that time, there's a, there's a Christian hip-hop artist named Lecrae who writes on his Twitter account, Chris Broussard answers a very direct question in a very direct way, and he says it, but you don't like it, and you call him intolerant. Okay? Now, now listen to this. This goes equally the opposite way because there are going to be people who have deep, deep disagreements and differences with what you believe. Are you going to muzzle them or are you going to allow them to talk? When you present a question to them, are you allowing them to say what they're going to say? Because love would say, treat them like a human being. And human beings, God made us to create thoughts, rightfully or wrongfully. Being a human is 
enabling yourself. God gave us voice to be able to speak. Will you honor that? Which doesn't mean you accept those beliefs as true. But will you be willing to engage at that level? Because our culture has done away with that in a couple ways that Rick Warren speaks to very clearly. He says this, our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with somebody's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. That's just not true. The first lie is if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. The second is that to love someone means that you agree with everything that they believe or do. He says both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. We desperately need compassionate conviction or convicted civility. The holding of your deep convictions while doing it in a compassionate way. Here's the reality, church. We gotta believe our beliefs. And we've gotta be willing to communicate them compassionately, but publicly, not just privately. Communicate, hold your convictions, but communicate them compassionately, but also publicly. Let's move on. A Christian response to homosexuality is marked by love that will manifest itself in a transformed mind or a mind that's continually being transformed. The world, the scriptures tell us, will consistently try to push you into its mold. It's a translation of Romans chapter 12, verse 2, is that you will be continually pressed into the Lord's mold. Therefore, we have to have an authority so a source outside of ourselves in which our minds can be renewed, transformed daily according to what God really desires, how God has really shaped the world. But you understand that the world, the flesh, the devil are constantly trying to feed you lies. The world is spouting out things all the time through all the different channels that are out there. Through teachers, through the radio, through the media. All the time there are ideas coming out, even from churches at times, that are speaking to you things that are contrary to what God would intend. There is a prince in power of the air who's out to seek, kill, and destroy. And as those ideas are being pressed, they seem very harmless the way we're accepting them. And yet, as we accept them, whether we know that we're accepting it or we don't know that we're accepting it, ideas have consequences. What you begin to believe and hold on to will affect how you behave and how you behave will have consequences for good or for ill. There's a song um, out right now by a hip-hop artist. That's a genre of music for those of you who are a little older. Um, there's a hip-hop artist named Macklemore, and, and he is gaining popularity like crazy. And I'll say this, he is an amazing artist. And he's incredibly, incredibly thoughtful. And he has a song out right now called Same Love. And as he does this at concerts and it's on CDs, he'll say, I don't know what your view of homosexuality is or what your view of gay marriage is, but here's mine. And he goes on to present this incredible artistic rendition to essentially say, you know, the church and traditional views on this are totally whacked, they're not loving, and it's about time that we progress beyond this. We all have the same love. This is what he says about the church in the midst of his song. He says, when I was at church, they taught me something else. If you preach hate at the service, those words aren't anointed, and the holy water that you soak in is then poisoned. Now, just to be really clear, Macklemore would look at what I've done the last two weeks and say, that's hate speech. Now, I would say, hey, wait a minute here. How can we have a constructive conversation if we both can't sit in a room and actually ask what human flourishing really is? What really is the good life? And because the Bible is here, like John Frame would say, I would argue that Romans says very clearly that the godly life is the good life. Now, what the public is going to constantly argue is that there are other ways unto the good life other than God. And if God contradicts my cultural sensibilities, I don't want God in that way. He says this earlier in the song that we're paraphrasing a book that was written 3,500 years ago. 
Now, here's what I want to say about this. The reality is people are listening to this music. You're listening to talk shows that are forming you in it many times, contrary to the way God would want you to think. Does talk radio really make me a more loving person? You answer it. Right? Do songs like this in the end, even when they speak the language of love, really make us more loving people? Because history would testify, church, all over the place, that there were many people who thought they were going in the good way, and it ended with disastrous consequences. Now, here's what I want to tell you right now. If your mind isn't being continually transformed, if you aren't listening to those things and asking questions of what are the beliefs that underlie them, you are being shaped and formed even unknowingly. Culture shapes us and we learn things from culture like we learn language. I may have said this in here last week, but like you learn language. If somebody asked me right now, Tyler, how did you learn English? I'd be stumped, like in the first, I have no idea how I learned, you know, I mean, and now I can begin to talk a little bit, because, you know, I can think a little, you know, I was in the midst of it, they started talking, I don't know, I just learned it, but do you remember, like, phonically, you know, learning to say, dad, no, I think I just kind of said dad, right, so people will ask the question, how is it that the culture has changed so much? If you look at the studies, the most recent studies from five years ago of people 32 and under of what their views were about homosexuality, they were actually quite traditional. In five years' time, that's nothing, right? That's nothing. In five years' time, the percentages have dramatically shifted. How does that happen? Well, one way, and we'll talk about another in a minute, one way is that you begin to think that culture doesn't shape you. You don't have an authority source outside of yourself. You become, let's say it this way, an unthinking human being. We stopped thinking, and I would say this is an area where the church should critique itself. We didn't look at marriage. We just said marriage is marriage between one man and one woman. Never stepped back and said why. We never answered the why questions to marriage. You and I never looked at this and went, okay, that's true. Do I just accept it? But why is it true? This happens so often in our faith. We never get underneath that would really enhance our worship to answer the why because you'd come out the other side and go, God, you're a genius. You are amazing in your design. You didn't just say, do this. Like, Don't worry about why, just do it. You don't parent like me, right? God actually gives us the whys. And when we don't have the whys, then here's the alternative when culture sh changes immediately on us. We resist it. You know, like rather than like a, a, a power bag when you box, a power bag you punch and it just envelops the punch, but it stays there and comes back at you strong, right? But it envelops the punch. That would be like meekness in the Bible. But then there's a speed bag, right? Boom, you hit it and just whack right back at your face. That's what we do. We react, right? Culture changes around us. And we go, there must be something wrong with the country, right? Which on one hand is true, right? On some levels. But on another hand, it's not very helpful. And the question at that moment is, are you just trying to make a point? Are you scared? Are you responding out of fear? Is that really going to change anything? That's one option. Or here's what we do. Just let it be. Right? Let bygones be bygones. This isn't really going to hurt anybody. I heard that so many times this week. Why can't we just leave people alone and let them do what they want to do? Two reasons. One, because that's not loving. That's called indifference. The opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. Go do whatever you want. That's, nobody lives by that creed. No, not if you care about somebody, you don't live by that creed. The other part, here's the other reason I won't let people do whatever they want. Because it affects me. Right? Like I have a vested self-interest in this. Now you could say that's selfish. The point I'm trying to make to you is we're all connected. If we don't in the end look at this and go, how do we create places, nations, cities, families where love can flourish, then we truly aren't obeying the call to love your neighbor as yourself. So realize this, church. Culture will shape you if you don't ask significant questions of what's behind that TV show, what's behind the beliefs of that TV personality, what's behind that song, what's behind, what are those beliefs? And then ask, and where do those beliefs lead? If we're unthinking people, we are, I would argue, 
unloving people because realize this. Paul just told us that you can claim to be wise. People think they're wise and in fact become fools. A Christian response to homosexuality is marked by convicted civility. It's marked by a transforming mind, a thinking person. And a Christian response to homosexuality is marked by love and a winsome way. Now, I want to spend some time on this because this is really going to get at how should we conduct ourselves. Real practically, how should we conduct ourselves? Hear this and hear this loud. If, if you remember a line from today, remember this. Jesus did not come to make a point. He came to make a difference. And if we're going to be little Christ, we have to follow in that way. Are you seeking to just make a point or do you want to make a difference? Jesus didn't come to just say the truth. He came to transform the world. He didn't come to just tell you what's right. He came to transform your heart so that you live in righteousness. This isn't just about making a point. It's about making a difference. Tom uh, Schrader, who's the founding pastor here at the Gilbert Congregation, has told a story many times from this pulpit about when he first came to Christ, he experienced this incredible transformation God's work was having its way in Tom's heart, and he began to get very passionate. And Tom was speaking to people, specifically his wife Susan, true words. But I think why he would tell the story in a very humorous way is it may not have always been in the Lord's way. So he would say he'd go home, and he'd begin to share the gospel with her and tell her these things. And then he'd say, do you not know that you're going to hell? And she would respond to him, or at least one time responded to him and said, are you going to be there? To which he said, no. And she said, then I'm fine. <laughs> this again, it, Francis Schaeffer is very, very helpful when he says, we are to do the Lord's work, the Lord's way. The Lord's word is clear and the Lord's way is clear. The word is truth. The way is love. You can't define one without the other. And this is why in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. Because the truth is what sets us free. And yet many of us feel so comfortable making a point that we could care less about making a difference. And I would argue to you, even biblically speaking, 1 Peter 3.15 would make this argument is that love, the way in which you go about these things, will be the primary means John 13 says this, in which the world sees the love of God. 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy and always be prepared to make a defense, an apologetic, and a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Here's the question. Why would they ever come up to you and ask you about the hope that lives within you if you're not amongst them and amongst them in God's way that it's compelling enough that they go, I want to spend more time with this guy? Because if you come up and just immediately bash him in the face, they're going to go, hey, when's the soonest way and the fastest way I can get out the back door to never be around that person again? But this person's going, engaging you, coming closer to you, saying, what, what is the hope? that lies within you. Likely because you've done it with gentleness and with respect. Like 1 Corinthians 13, with patience, with kindness, without envying, without boasting, without being arrogant, without being rude. So what does it mean to be a good neighbor like that? To get somebody to lean into us in the midst of conversations, even when we hold our convictions deeply, but we speak them with gentleness and respect, like 1 Peter 3.15 says. How does that happen? Well, the first one is you have to be amongst them. I said we'd come back to this, but when you look at these studies that are being done of how fast culture is changing, you, you have to begin to go, how did that happen? And, and I'm going to use a big phrase here, but explain it, so stay with me. Essentially what happened is the plausibility structure changed. Now, plausibility, is a word, that word just means reasonable, right? Something seems reasonable. The reality is even 10 years ago to 15 years ago, homosexuality was still thought of as weird. Hence why people were in the closet. 
it, which let's not argue right now whether or not that's right. A lot of the reasons they were in the closet is because people hated them and treated them horribly, which is despicable and a disgrace to God. But the other part is people, the reason many weren't coming out is it just didn't seem plausible. It didn't seem reasonable. Now they're coming out on national television and they want to be the first one to come out. Now, again, don't hear this as a massive critique, though I could have my critiques. But what I want to show you is something changed. How does something become so reasonable so fast? Here's the major reason. People now begin to know homosexuals. And as they did, they went, they're not weird. They've got dreams like I have dreams. They have desires like I have desires. They have angst in their heart like I have angst in their heart. They struggled with their parents like I struggled with my parents. They're not weird. They're my friends. Now here's what's crazy, church. Before it was that homosexuals were thought of as weird. Who's thought of as weird now? Christians. You're a Christian? You actually believe that? Now that was always there, but in much smaller numbers. Something's changed dramatically. Now, we can critique them. That's the degradation of culture. And not be all wrong. Maybe a lot right. But let me ask you another question. Maybe it's because we've been, as Becky Pippert says, the salt was in the salt shaker for so long. Get the salt out of the salt shaker. We were in the salt shaker so long, it's no more plausible to believe in Jesus. We weren't amongst them. We didn't obey Jesus' high priestly prayer. God, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world. We felt like comfort, convenience, safety, and security was outside of the world. Let's huddle up to stay away from that sin, not realizing we brought our own sin into the table. Hence why people go, church is a joke, right? You, you forget that. Rather than having an outward posture, living in such a way that people go, they're not weird. There's reasons they believe what they believe. They're actually my, here's a noble concept, friends. If you want to know what love would lead to, what does Jesus say about us? If we want to be little Christ, he says, I've no, you're no longer my servants, you're my friends. So let me say this, church. Be very, very cautious with speaking a word if you don't have a homosexual friend. You could. You know the truth. I get it. I told you to speak publicly. I'm saying the Bible gives all of us the warning of be quick to listen and slow to speak. You better be even slower to speak if you've never moved beyond to engage and try to cultivate a friendship with somebody who has same-sex attraction, orientation, or would outright speak about being loved. You know, the plausibility structure that God set up the world that they would know God's God and Jesus is the way, it's the church. Right? Acts 17 says that, that God has appointed the boundaries and the times in which people live, and these are blind people, we know theologically, that they might seek and feel their way to God. Now, if you know your Bible at all, what is it that they bump up against to find God? The church, the people of God. That's the plausibility structure. The plausibility structure that God gave the world is the church, that the church is to live in such a way that we are constantly declaring, this is what Jesus what life looks like under the kingship of Christ. When the ethic is love in everything that we do, this is what marriage dynamics look like. This is what race relations look like. This is what business practices look like. This is what family dynamics look like. This is what it looks like to engage with somebody that doesn't believe like you. Even to the point, Paul will get to later in this letter, this is what it looks like to love somebody who hates you. Your enemies. If we just applied 1 Corinthians 13 in all of our discourse and all of our actions, being patient and kind, stopping, not having to give an immediate answer, not insisting on your own way, not being arrogant or rude. Now, let me just step back for a minute and just say, all of you who are on Facebook, many of you, all you're trying to do is make a point, not make a difference. Tons of you, you just want to paste something up there to make a point without ever thinking, will this really make a difference? You know, and you may be thinking, well, God is the one who makes it. I agree, right? But, I mean, I sit there and go, I know God's omnipotent, but I don't know if he could even work through that nonsense. Like, that's, that's crazy. 
Right? Like you've got to think about, is this a loving way to present this conversation? Now, don't hear me as saying soften it. Convicted civility. Understand where these people are, which leads to my next point. Understand that the answer to this is very simple, but the context we find ourselves in is extraordinarily complex. Sin makes things extraordinarily complex when the way God designed it is very, very simple. But if you communicate yourself simplistically, right, where you don't walk through the journey of how complex this is for somebody deep in their hearts, you don't understand the reality of it. It doesn't even seem reasonable to believe what you believe. Paul did this. This is why he said, I become all things to all men so that by any means possible, I might win some. He was about making a difference. Therefore, he, what people will say, incarnated himself. He got with them. He sat back. He listened. He asked questions. He respected their humanity. He went, why do you believe what you believe? He didn't truncate, meaning shrink their experiences to, that's so stupid, the Bible's so clear. Right? If, if it was that easy, right? I mean, if it was that easy, we wouldn't be in any of the situation that we're in right now. So I'm not saying soften the truth, but do it winsomely, with gentleness, with respect, with understanding the full doctrine in the Bible of the complexity of sin. Because sin is stated to us that it's deceitful. People think they're wise and in turn buy foolish ideas and become foolish themselves. Sin is deceitful to us. That's why the book of Hebrews says you need to have the scriptures and people around you telling you, no, that's not, I know you think that's the way to joy and happiness and life, but it's not the way. It's deceitful and it's complex. So I've come up with this idea of the other side of simple, right? The answer's simple, but if I answer on the front end without going through the experience with somebody, it's simplistic, but if I walk through the journey, if I sit and listen, if I'm patient and kind, I'm not arrogant or rude. I'm not envious or boastful or demanding my own way. I'm not letting fear get the best of me. I'm scared to death of what's going to happen to our whole world. Fear's not getting the best of me. Faith is that I'm willing to walk through in a patient journey, reminding myself at this moment when somebody disagrees with me, the very thing Rick Warren said, their disagreement with me does not mean they hate me. It doesn't mean they don't love me. I'm applying it the opposite end. And I'm willing to go through this entire journey realizing this person didn't sin against me personally. Why am I taking this so personal? I'm dealing with my own fears and my own idolatry as I move through this in conversation with people. And then the answer is the same. It's simple. But the other side of simple develops a plausibility structure. The person goes, they're my friend. I understand where they're coming from. I've spoken with them. I feel dignified as a human being rather than written off like a rat. It's the other side of simple. Your language matters. Okay, your language matters. Don't say simple, trite statements. Get to know them. Ask questions. Say honest things like, I couldn't imagine what you're going through. I'm certainly people have hurt you at many, many times. I can't relate to the angst that you're experiencing on this issue. Could you help me experience it? Bear burdens with them. Seek to see if they'll share experiences with you. Help me understand that. Love them. Rather than trite, simple, like, oh, sin, sin, right? And they're going, oh, it doesn't feel like that because you're living a pretty good life and I'm not like enter in with them. Ask good questions. Let me just say something really quickly to to you and to families about this. You have to be ever aware at what you're exposing yourself to, and we said this before, and how you're allowing it to sink in, which means parents with children. You've got to be very, very intentional with where you allow them to go, especially young kids as an issue like this gets normalized along with all kinds of other sin, gets normalized, I would warn you against running to the hills and trying to get away from it because sin's actually really big and it's affected everything if you didn't know that. Um, So even if you go to the hills, it's there, right? It's kind of like God. If you run away, I'm still there. Sin is too. Um, 
be careful of that, but be really careful with what you allow them to do. Because as parents, you set the rudder of your young kids. You set the rudder. And many of us have been hands-off and different. Let, let bygones be bygones. And then your kids start having beliefs at 17. How in the world did this possibly happen? Now, that doesn't mean strangle them to death, right? But be aware, when they're young, you, you can control more when they're young what they're exposed to and what they're not exposed to. And you certainly can control what you're telling them what you're infusing their minds with. And you don't need to become a cultural warrior on this, but teach them truth. And then as it goes, begin to talk about it. Hey, you're gonna see these things. Here's what you think, but we're always loving and we're always engaging and we're always going through it. But realize that there needs to be a significant, significant intentionality with that. On that notion, along with all types of other things, I'm gonna say again, be winsomely public. Even when I'm sitting with friends of mine who disagree with me on this issue and maybe even um, personally experiencing this issue, being private is not winsome. Like acting like you don't have convictions on these things isn't winsome. And I would argue it isn't even loving. So for instance, the conversation about gay marriage, we don't have time to go through all of this, but there's some really, really good writing out there. I would just argue to you who go, listen, the government shouldn't legislate morality. The government's given for love. It's, we're going to get to this. It's couched in between Romans 12 that's about love and Romans 13 that's about love. So basic Bible study would begin to go, government's given for love, right? And that's basic Bible study. It's inside the context of that. And so therefore, if you step back and said something like, I don't think the government should be involved in plumbing because clean water doesn't really matter. Well, the person who's drinking unclean water, it probably matters too, Right? Policy does matter. Policies and laws are given by God. Government is given the responsibility to develop policies and laws to create a more flourishing society. So what that means is you have to think. You can't just disengage on these issues. And what gets legislated will make an impact on people, which does have to do with love. Just realize that. So when you think about being winsome, don't be winsomely private. Be public, because the Bible's public truth, but be winsome in your public engagement of that. Here's the last thing I want to say is, a Christian, Jesus-shaped response to homosexuality is marked by love, and it manifests itself in hope. It manifests itself in hope. In a world that's marked by fear and pessimism, the Christian antidote to that, the Christian vaccine to fear and pessimism is hope. If fear and pessimism is a disease, the vaccine is hope. Now let me acknowledge something right now. What you feel and the fears that you feel are extraordinarily real. I'm not telling you they're not real. I have a two-year-old daughter and probably 10 months ago, she came up um, with a huge bout of being scared of your shadow Now, before that, I thought that was just a phrase people say. He's scared of his own shadow, right? And then I went, oh my gosh, there's like actually people who are scared of their own shadows. So my daughter, there was one night where Haley was telling Luciana, go to your room. And she went like this, and it was a night. So the shadow cast across the wall. Lucy saw it, and from that point forward, all hell broke loose. And that's what it felt like. I mean, I'm not kidding. When you have a child that literally is sitting on the ground and will only look straight up because she's scared to see her shadow, you start thinking about things like, I got to feed this child, right? Otherwise she'll die. She needs to drink water. She needs water more than food. She won't drink water right now and can't drink it sitting down. Like, I want to go to sleep. This child needs to sleep so I can sleep. You're thinking about things, right? But she's sitting there just looking up. So it goes on for a little bit. Then it gets to a point where I'm like, this is ridiculous, right? And I say to Haley, Haley, this is crazy. Like, this is absolutely ridiculous. To which she says back to me, Tyler, this is entirely ridiculous. Yet to her, it feels so real. I know that's true in tons of your lives. So let me state something to you. What you feel is very, very real. But Tom said this all the time and trained us well, that what you know has to trump what you feel. What you feel is real and you need to feel your feelings. What's interesting in this situation is that many of us sit in this room, feel feelings so deep that scare us to death because what's happening outside of us feels like it's a tsunami wave about to take us over and we're scared to death. And yet many people who are in this room who have homosexual, same-sex attraction, 
orientation and or gay feel that same thing, but it's inside them. They feel like there's no hope, especially Christians who will sit in these seats today. They sit there and they go, is there any hope? Well, the book of Hebrews says faith is the conviction of things that are hoped for. It's the assurance of things not seen and the conviction of things that are hoped for. Well, what's the assurance of that which isn't seen? Well, one's God. What's the assurance of things that are not seen? That God is victorious. What's the hope that we have that Hebrews talked about? Is that we're looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. We're looking to a heavenly country where all things are set the way that they're supposed to be set. And that reality, that truth of what we hope for, has broken into the present in Jesus Christ and transformed our twisted, dark hearts that have claimed to be wise and become foolish, and it changes us. Now, if you sit in this room with same-sex attraction or orientation, I want to just say something to you before we leave. We said it last week, and for the sake, I know this is simple, but let me just say, there is a different in, difference inside people. Some of you sit out there and go, man, I remember one time I was attracted to somebody of the same sex. Does that make me gay? Right? Same-sex attraction has a scale to it. We're not saying that. But that, at that moment, you may not even feel like you have a choice. I can't control what I felt. Same-sex orientation people go, I was born, the first time I had sexual feelings towards anybody, it was always to somebody of the same sex. After last week, I was challenged by a friend of mine who goes to the church, and um, they said to me, you know, it, it felt like when you ended with that big booming quote from that lady from Syracuse that in the end, it's like, well, in the end, you should get married, adopt four kids, and live happily ever after. And he said to me, the challenge with that is, for any, the second I had having, started having sexual feelings, I felt them for the same sex. And my mom's been with me the whole way, telling me God's design. I've been praying since that time for 15 some years, all the way until now, and it's never changed. Now, he, for the sake of time, let me say this really simply. If Jesus rose from the dead, you can be like the boys in the book of Daniel who say to the king when they're going to get thrown into the fire, we will trust God and he will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, the issue is no matter where you are, there's a difference between same-sex attraction, same-sex orientation, but the choice is in when you say, I'm going to live it out, I'm going to make it my identity, that's why I am. That's a choice. All the rest of the stuff we can argue, what's a choice and not? Let's say for right now, it's not. The choice is, will you trust God? Do you believe that his words are true and do you believe that they're the words of life? And if they are, you follow him. You go to him with all your angst, knowing that he said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. And even in the midst of your turmoil, the center point is Christ. That's the same hope for all of us who feel like what's happening outside of us is a tsunami coming upon you. The antidote, the vaccine towards fear and pessimism is Christ. Do you believe him? If he rose from the dead, he was victorious. Death will not win. Destruction will not win. Life has been brought in the man Jesus Christ. Hope, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. We know it. Therefore, we can live lives of love. The center point, the giver of hope is Jesus himself. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we want to respond like you. Because death has been defeated, life is here. God, we love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.